Hello, friends, and welcome to Business and Beers Japan. As always, this episode is sponsored by Gugu. What is Gugu? First of all, it's a Japanese word. It's onomatopoeia for the sound you make when in deep sleep. And a great sleep is exactly what you get with a Gugu mattress. Gugu is a new concept in sleep comfort. It's a bed in a box. What is bed in a box? It's exactly that, a bed which comes in a compact box. It's revolutionary. Just go to gugu.jp, read all about it, especially the many testimonials from satisfied customers. They have single, double, and queen size available. And now you, the business and beers listeners, get an additional 20% off their already super affordable prices. Just enter BB Japan in the promo code box. If that's not enough to convince you, shipping is free and you get a 100 night great sleep guarantee. If it's not the best sleep ever, return the bed for free. There's really no risk. Just go to gugu.jp and get ready for sweet dreams. Better sleep, better you. This episode, I sit down with Rochelle Kopp. Rochelle is a real expert when it comes to Japanese culture and doing business in Japan. She is the managing principal of Japan Intercultural Consulting, an international training and consulting firm. As you will soon hear, she is super passionate and has some strong opinions about Japanese communication style, organizational behavior, and decision making in Japanese firms. She knows her stuff like no one I've met before. In addition, she teaches at university. Has written numerous books and has a monthly article in the Japan Times. Rochelle is an expert at flower arrangement, calligraphy, and kendo sword fighting. When it comes to understanding all things interculturally Japanese, she's the real deal. Get ready for Rochelle Cop. What it means is that there are tremendous numbers of people in Japan who are doing jobs that they don't want to be in,、right. that they're not interested in. And actually, Japan, if you look at international surveys or studies of employee engagement, which is how emotionally invested you are or excited you are about your job, Japan always comes in last. But it, it, Japan is, is blessed with lots of smart, Well educated and dedicated people, but it doesn't use them well. And that's kind of the, one of the tragedies of Japanese business. It's wasted potential. Why do you suppose in Japan there is a character or a mascot for almost everything? I know. Some of them are quite funny too, right? Yeah. Right. Somehow. By having a mascot, it, it softens the image or it makes it feel more friendly. And it creates this sense of warmth that I think they're looking for. And so that's why I think you see mascots for odd things like prisons or, <laughs> or the pension agency or the tax agency. You know, so, th- so, things, so things that maybe you wouldn't naturally warm up to if you have a mascot, somehow it's. It makes it nicer, right? I mean,、right. it just makes it very incongruous. You know, I was visiting a,、um, a company today in 
sleek black and gray offices in a new high rise. It was all very fancy. But then in their in their reception area, they had giant. I, I forgot the names of them, but the mascots for the Olympics and the Paralympics. Yes, yes. The yeah. pink and the blue yeah, ones. They yeah. had giant ones of them. You know, they, they were the size of small children. Oh you my know, gosh. Hey, and sitting on is sitting in there. <laughs> it was just such a weird thing in this ultra chic environment. And then they've got these, you know, basically giant dolls there. It just for me, it feels funny, but I guess yeah. it somehow works in Japanese culture. So. Do you think cuteness has anything to do with it? Well, yeah, I think that that that. That people somehow things that are cute gives them a warm feeling in the cockles of their heart somehow. <laughs> Once a very very long time ago, I got a call. I was living in Chicago at the time, and I got a call in December, and they said, "What are you doing the first week of January?" And I'm like, "That's normally pretty cl- slow for consultants, so I don't have anything booked." And they said, "We've got a couple Japanese coming to take a." Flavor Appreciation of Beer Course at the Siebel School of Microbrewing in Chicago. Would you come and be the interpreter for them? I'm okay. like, I don't, I can't interpret. That's not my normal career, but I will come and do that. Yes. Sure. <laughs> I don't know if they ever went through with it, but they were planning to create a beer equivalent of the sake sommelier. So I learned great words in Japanese, like t- how to say taste bud, things like that. Taste bud? That I don't know. Mikakuga. Oh, mikaku ga. Yeah, mikaku is the sense of taste, and yes, ga right. must be the bud. bud yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so anyways, it was a very fun week, so I got yeah. paid to drink beer for a week. <laughs> well, cheers. Okay, cheers. Nice to meet you finally. Yes. You are a businesswoman, a teacher, an advisor, a writer, a champion for female empowerment. You have tons of hobbies and interests, travel back and forth between Japan and the U.S., yet you still find some time to sit down with me for this podcast. Okay. Who, what, why, where, and when? <laughs> um, I'm not sure where I should start, but... Wherever you want. So I grew up near Chicago, and uh, my hobby in high school was art, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, drawing and painting and things like that. And in Chicago at the Art Institute, there's a fabulous collection of ukiyo-e. Yes. And, Boston, too. Right, yes. And that were created at the similar time. Those were fascinating... I took classes in an artist studio. There was a Japanese artist who used the space. She was a fabulous artist and an interesting person. We lived near the uh, Botanic Gardens in Chicago, and there were often Ikebana exhibits. And so I had lots of things that intrigued me about Japan. And then... um, Got interested in business as a career and you know, Pacific Century, etc. was on the cover of whatever magazine. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to learn Japanese? It would be really fun for all the cultural things that I find so intriguing. And it could be something useful for a career in the future. Two birds with one stone. So that was the idea. Iseki Nicho. Right. And so then in college, I studied Japanese and turned out to really like it. And yeah. I kind of went from there. Fabulous. And on top of that, you have tons of hobbies, <laughs> or you're, I should say, you're certified also in oh, a yeah. lot of traditional Japanese arts, That's like true. flower arrangement, calligraphy, shodo, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. some kendo. Mm-hmm. What, no, no tea ceremony? You know, I have never done tea ceremony. I, I just, that's never really appealed to me, to be honest. You have to have a lot of patience and sit still a lot, and that's just not my strength. <laughs> Do all of these traditional Japanese hobbies. Do any of them have a, an influence on your business or even your life? Mm, that's interesting. Um, well, I feel 
you know, and again, with a couple of them, like the Ikebana and the Shodo, those are ones I did a really long time ago. But anything, any traditional Japanese art or sport that ends with do, right. it was based in a certain set of principles and an approach to things. And so I think understanding that helps me understand a lot about the Japanese mindset and also helps me understand a lot about a lot of things in business as well. I often share the example of when I was um, taking Ikebana classes when I lived in Japan. And the style of teaching for that was very different than we would expect in a Western environment. Typically in a Western environment, if you are teaching someone to do something, you explain it and you give conceptual information. Okay, and sure. so people process it you know, in, a, in a kind of a rational way, right? right. Learning Ikebana in Japan, the teacher would stand in front of us, say, oh, today we're doing an, an upright style arrangement or a slanting style arrangement, and she'd go, shoot, 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 and she'd put the, put the thing together, create this gorgeous thing. But she didn't make that sound when she did it, though, did no, she? No, no, but no, that's, shoo, just shoo, my, shoo. that's just my, you know, um, you can't see my hands, right? You, you can't you, see my hands moving, though. But it's you your kitai go. Yeah, she kind of puts it together really quickly, <laughs> you know, in just a lickety-split, without any explanation of what she's putting where or why. And then she said to all of us, okay, you try. And we've all got the same vase, and we've all got the same flowers, and I'm thinking, what in the heck did she do? And so I'm looking at that, and I'm like trying to put it together. And so then once I put it together, she'd come around to each student. She stood there, you know, wordlessly, took all the flowers and branches out, and then put them all back in again. Right in front of you. Yes. And of course, when she did that, it looked a million times better than what I'd done. But there was no explanation whatsoever of what was wrong with what I had done or why she had changed it. Two things are going through my head. One is, you know, I have now no, you know, no self-esteem. Obviously, I'm not good at this. I did terribly. And then also, okay, I'm, I'm, how am I going to learn this way, right? And so after, you know, several weeks like this had passed, I thought, why am I spending my time and money taking this class? And that's normally when I think most Americans would just throw in the towel. True. However, I did a very Japanese thing. I had been introduced to this class in Japan from my Ikebana instructor that I'd taken some classes in Chicago before I went to Japan. So she had written to her people in Japan and introduced me to this fancy class. And I felt that if I quit early, that she would lose face with her friends. Wow, that's a very Japanese exactly. emotion to have. I was very, being very Japanese about it, and I said, well, I'm going to keep going, even though I'm really just not that thrilled with this thing. Gaman. So I kept going, and then a funny thing happened a few th- months later. The teacher came around to look at my arrangement. She left one of the branches in. One of the branches was okay. <laughs> Somehow I was making progress. Then after a little How while... How many branches were there? Oh, like five or six, right? Okay. okay. So after a little while, it was two branches, right? So after, after maybe about a year, oh, I got to the point where she was only doing some adjustments. So that was a very long time period. It was very painful. But I did learn how to do it. But the problem was is that I never learned how to do it in any kind of conceptual manner. So then what happens is that let's say I'm back in the U.S. and I have a party 
and one of my friends brings over flowers. Sometimes I'll take out my cabana stuff and I go, I'm going to take these flowers you gave me and I'm going to make a little arrangement. And then my American friends will say, why'd you put that branch over there? Why is that leaf at that angle? Why is that flower that height? And I can't answer any of those questions Uh because I don't have that information organized in my way and I, any kind of rational way that I can talk about it. So then I give up, end up giving lame answers like, well, it just looks better that way, or that's the way you do it. And the thing about that way that I learned to do Ikebana is that's the way a lot of Japanese people learn to do their jobs, that they get hired and they're there to watch their senpai, you know, yeah. their more experienced employees, and they learn things on the job, and they write reports, and their superior corrects it, right? A great example is um, in Toyota and a lot of other Japanese companies, they use a report style called an A3, where they organize information. It kind of looks like a bento box. It's a, it's a way of rationally organizing things. And I asked one of my clients, how did you learn how to write A3s? And he said, well, when I was a young employee, I would write one. And my boss would write all over it in red ink what I did wrong, and then I'd do it again. He learned how to do A3s the same way I learned how to do a cabana. Wow. And he couldn't explain it to anyone, but he had been trained to do it. So that, that, and that's, so that way of doing things, it carries over into business as well. It certainly does. So yes. the name of your company is Japan... Intercultural Consulting. Correct. All right. How does someone go about becoming a JBCE and CCCS? I'm sorry, what? A Japanese business culture expert and cross-cultural communications specialist. Right, yes, okay. That's my own acronym I just made up. Okay, great. That's why I didn't recognize it. Okay. So... Well, I'll, t- I'll share with you the, th- the key thing that we look for for people that we add to our team. Because it and, seems yeah. like you have to live it. Exactly. That is the key thing, is that we really look for people who have lived it. And a lot of people early in their career say, well, how do I have a career like yours? And I always tell people that you need to get hands-on experience. Sure. So I always you know, recommend for, for younger people to get a job in a cross-cultural environment where you can be really participating in things and involved and observing. Did it get dark in here? I think they turned on the lights a little bit. There's probably a certain time when they do that. It's that kind of a think. weird time. It's actually 5.25. Okay, there you go. That must be their time. I don't know. <laughs> did you notice the lights get darker? I did notice it, yes. I didn't notice it until I looked down at this. and <laughs> you couldn't I was, read it was, anymore. It was a little bit harder to read. I'm like, what happened here? But yet, you know, you write a column once a month for the Japan Times. That's correct, Those yes. are great articles, by oh, the way. thank you. And when I read them, I always pull out little nuggets. And a lot of them I know kind of instinctively. But you put it so eloquently in how you write it. I go, yeah, that's how you would say it. You, you recently had an article about debating Japanese and how mm. Japanese are not very good at persuasion and debating. And within that, and I totally agree with that, in your writing, you wrote towards the end something that don't worry about getting an, a word in edgewise because typically Japanese take turns during a meeting or take turns right. during a conversation. Right. And that's totally true, but I never I never really realized that. Mm-hmm. I'll be in a meeting sometimes 
and somebody will be, be making a point, and then I'll prepare my uh, counterpoint or agreement point or whatever it may be, and I just I don't jump in and interrupt them because I know that, oh, in probably 30 seconds, it'll be my turn. Right. They'll give you a chance at some point, right? Yes, yeah, so exactly. that was really interesting. Yeah. I like the article that you just published. I think I saw it today mm-hmm. about... English. Right, all the bad English. What right? was that called? It was called, hold on, I wrote it here somewhere. Oh, uh, there needs a, needs a native touch. Oh, yeah. Why English translation needs the native touch. Yeah, yes. That was a great article, and it okay. really hit home for me. I had a part-time job or a side gig working for a major Japanese confectionery company, and my job was to check their package English. Oh my goodness. Because there's a lot of packaging English out there that's pretty bad, right? Right. I got that job through a previous career that I had. It was an image transfer technology. And so a lot of these food and beverage and confectionery companies and all this that wanted to have package dummies made, they would... That, that was oh, my business. So I would make, I would okay. make package dummies for oh. market research, focus uh-huh. group, right. advertisement shoots, et cetera, before yeah. the products were launched. Yeah. So we would get the artwork in advance. I would see it. And when I would talk to him, I said, oh, do you know your English is kind of banged up? Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> grammatically, it's wrong or it just doesn't make sense in, to the native, native speaker. Over half of them did not care. They literally said, we don't care, it's just cosmetic English. Right, and it's just for the domestic market. No one's going to read it anyways. Your Japan Times articles, do you write those yourself? Yes, I do. Wow, you're a good writer. Thank you. Yeah. I'm uh, also lucky my editor there is really great too. But just a couple titles, for example, are Dealing with the Boss from Hell, You Could Be Getting Power Harassed is one. Definitely timely. Right, right. Uh, ditch the debate tactics when it comes to persuading Japanese colleagues. Definitely. Americans, Germans, they love debating. Love debating. They love to debate. And French, I've, too. Oh, French as well, yeah. It's almost like a game. And Japanese really hate, hate that. They hate it. They hate it Especially if the person trying to debate them is their boss. Right. They're not going to agree. Or they're not going to disagree. They're not no. going to get a debate in that situation. But anyway, all of those articles are definitely fantastic. They're they're an easy read. I mean, you'll be done in you know five minutes. Yeah, they're reading not them. that long, right? No. And if you're interested in Japanese business or, or Japanese culture, they're definitely insightful. Uh, do you have the rights to all of these articles or yes, Japan uh-huh, Times? Right, right. No, yeah. How many are there? Um, I've only been doing it for a year, so it's probably just about a dozen at this point. Oh, okay. Yeah, at some point, it'll be maybe put them together as a book or something. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, at one point, you can probably put them all together. Right, yeah. And add some more content and, and have another book out of it, yeah, probably. Right, yes. Well, this is true, too. Yeah. <laughs> Again, getting back to Japan, in your very first thing that you said about how Japanese, they just kind of learn by osmosis. And the Japanese word for that is minarai. Minarai, yes. Yes. But also at the same time, there's so much ido. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Jinjido. Jin, yeah, Jinjido. The, oh, how that's do you say it in English? One. Oh, um, periodic uh, personnel rotations. One of my other giant pet peeves. Yes. Huge issue. So that goes back to you. So even if company A employs you or, or hires you as a consultant so they can internationalize and maybe the head manager at that time thought, hey, we need to hire Rochelle because she can really help us 
uh, in this area. And then maybe this guy gets transferred uh, a month later and then everything that you've done is for naught. Unfortunately, that does happen. And that is you know, a big challenge for, I think, for any service provider selling to Japanese organizations. Right. right, is that the staff move in and out, and unfortunately, there's often not a very good handoff uh, when people transfer. And also, what happens in some cases is once there's a change in staff, the new person actively wants to ignore or change what his predecessor did. Wants to make his so mark. That he makes one to make his mark, and if you're associated with what that other person did, then he wants no more to do with you, right? Right. Yeah, that is, that is something I think that probably every service provider who works with Japanese companies has to struggle sure. with, sure. right? Unless you're doing a service that has continuity built in, yeah. like being a legal advisor or being an accountant yeah. you know things like that have you know repeatability built in but if right. you're selling anything that doesn't have that built in then you're susceptible to that problem yeah uh when i first came to japan in 1991 i worked for toba department store mm-hmm. in ikebukuro again this was the president of toba department store Kokusaika internationalization was uh-huh, a that, buzzword at that time uh, I remember that, yes. and so he hired two foreigners and i was one of them uh, but we had, I had a very good experience there. And one lady I became a good friend with, she was a buyer for women's wear. And then one day she came to my, my shop and she said, oh, um, Andrew, I'm quitting today. I said, oh, why are you quitting? And she says, oh, because I got transferred from being a buyer. I got transferred to the HR department. And I don't want to work in HR. And so I'm going to quit. She quit. Wow. Yeah, she did. And I thought, what a waste. Because now... They need to find a new buyer. And a new HR and, person. And they need to find an HR person. All right. And it was just on principle that when, they, when she said, well, in that case, I'm going to quit. Uh, and I think a lot of Japanese uh, in that situation, they don't become confrontational with the, the HR department or their bosses. They just kind of they quietly, they just go quietly away. They go away. Well, they don't yeah. think that they have any opportunity to ask for something different. Right. And, and, and unfortunately, that's a key feature of how HR tends to be done in Japanese companies is that people are moved around without any consultation about whether they would like to be moved to that position. Yes. Which is completely different than what we would expect in the United States, for example. And I think that that holds back Japanese companies... I I think it holds them back in a lot of ways because what it means is that there are tremendous numbers of people in Japan who are doing jobs that they don't want to be in, that they're not interested in. And actually, Japan, if you look at international surveys or studies of employee engagement, which is how emotionally invested you are or excited you are about your job, Japan always comes in last. And I think a really big part of it is this assigning people to jobs that they're not interested in. And also the other, the other thing that when you think about how people at least attempt to, to choose their careers in, in other countries, it tends to be based on, well, what are your strengths? What are your skills? What are your interests? Exactly. And the, the Japanese Jinji Do rotation system tends to not take those into account and instead right. treats people as interchangeable parts. Right. And so if you're not thinking about what's unique about each person and matching them to a job carefully, 
you're going to get terrible mismatches and have people who hate what they're doing. And then you're going to have people who aren't motivated. And studies show that people who aren't motivated aren't productive. Of course. And one of the biggest problems that Japan has right now is low labor productivity. One of you know, the most important resources that Japan has as a country is people. Because Japan doesn't have a lot of natural resources, if you, as you're here all the time. Sure. And, but it, it, Japan is, is blessed with lots of smart, well-educated, and dedicated people. But it doesn't use them well. And that's kind of the, one of the tragedies of Japanese business. It's wasted potential. There was just a big uh, to-do about that with, I think it was um, Kanika, one of, the, one of the, um, the chemical firms. There was a big to-do on social media last yes. year. Where, yes, I saw that. Yeah, yes. Well, the guy got transferred to a branch office right after he came back from paternity leave. And this is, is this harassment for taking oh, leave? Oh, that's, that's what it and was, is, yes. And it isn't really appropriate at that time to be transferring someone. And why do people even get transferred against their will or, yeah. or, or without consultation? You know, and it all goes back to you know, the lifetime employment system, which a lot of Japanese like because it gives you stability but it also means that basically you you have no choices yeah. because the way the japanese um, law defines being a full uh, a full-time you know say shine or a permanent employee right is that the company can give you any work at all go outside and chop wood and rake leaves and if you say no that is tantamount to you have resigned yep so the company has complete control what it assigns you to so there's a lot that Japanese give up for that stability. Sumasen. Goose IPA. How are you doing? What good? Everything is okay so far. You're you're you don't need anything else. No, I'm good. Totally comfortable. You're doing great, by the oh, way. Thanks. Well, of course you are. You know you would. <laughs> you're a pro. You are a. A JBCE and CCCS. Right, yeah, I have to remember that. It's a, t- yeah. it's a lot on a mouthful, right? <laughs> yeah, put those acronyms on your business card. It's probably a little shorter than writing it out. <laughs> Sweet. Why do Japanese have a, such a difficult time participating in meetings that are in English? Okay. Even if they speak English well, right. go to an overseas business trip maybe we have a conference and and the reason why you're in this meeting is because the head office expects that you have something to add right and i think and it doesn't usually pan out very right, well Right, that's very difficult and and you know that, that's actually one thing that we do have courses where we train people on this but i think um for japanese first there's the issue of being confident do i have something to add right, right. i think for a lot of americans we tend to have tons of confidence. Of course, anything I think, anyone's going to be interested in. Right. We tend to we tend to believe that. Japanese will tend to think, oh, is this really something worth saying? Am I going to sound stupid? And so they question themselves right. a lot. Okay. Right? So that's one thing. I think it's very hard when you're in a meeting conducted in a foreign language, um, particularly for Japanese, listening comprehension tends to be their weakest skill in English. And so they're listening to a meeting, and if it's in a foreign country, it means the people are speaking at their native speed that's very fast and with a lot of slang. And so often it's taking all their energy to just follow that conversation. So then it becomes very difficult to formulate what you want to say at the same time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, also, typically, um, people in a lot of other countries don't do that turn-taking that you were talking about earlier. Right. And so then there's never a point where it's easy to, to say something. It's intimidating. It's very intimidating. And in Japanese culture, it's quite rude to interrupt someone. True. And so I think a lot of Japanese struggle with, well, when is this time when I can talk? And the whole meeting ends, and they never found that opportunity. Once upon a time, I had a boss. He came to Japan, and he was from the U.S. He spoke no Japanese. And he was talking to the team, and I was kind of the local boss, and so I was doing some translation for him. And he says, at the end of the day, we're not just going to throw a Hail Mary and, and see what sticks to the wall. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? Poor Japanese staff. Oh, that's like a 10-minute explanation <laughs> in Japanese to get all of those covered. And I just translated that as, Minasan, san gambara we we just got to do our best. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> basically, all. yeah. And everyone's boy. looking at me like, well, his the English was a lot longer right, than but, what you just uh, said. Yeah, I know. I don't want to have to try and do Hail Mary Pass in Japanese. That's a pain. <laughs> I mean, even though, I mean, you, I guess you could translate at the end of the day as kekyoku. Kekyoku, that's, that, that's, that's, that's not that's tough. Okay, yeah, that's okay. not too bad. Hail Mary Pass, I, I would have to really think about yeah, that Yeah, and, and, th- and throw it at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, that's hard, too. Yeah, and it's hard to come up with those things off the top of your head. True. Very good. Did you see that uh, survey recently? It kind of made, made the rounds here in Japan. And the, the headline was, over 30% of Japanese managers feel intense stress from working with foreigners. Did you see I that? I did see that, yes. Ha. Yes, I saw that. It was hilarious. And, and I was like, okay, why doesn't someone send some of those managers to our classes? We can help with that. Exactly. We have a solution for that problem. Come, please call me. The top five <laughs> reasons why Japanese managers feel stress working with foreigners. Number one is foreign workers are very self-assertive. Yeah, yeah. That, we hear that all the time. It's jiko shucho gatsuoi. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, I, and I drill down with people, like, well, what is it that they're doing Shiko Shucho about? And a lot of times it's, well, they're asking for more money in payment. Well, <laughs> surprisingly enough, that was number three. Oh, is that number three? Okay. They make aggressive demands for, for salary yeah. raises. Yeah, yeah, that comes up all the time, yeah. Which, which, which is indicative of a whole lot of other problems, but yes, okay. I had that happen when I worked at Tobu. I remember uh-huh. my first year, I was a Seishain. I was an official... Regular wow. employee, uh-huh. yeah, uh, but my salary was quite low. And after working a year, and I thought I did a good job, and the task that I was given to do, they did give me kind of a sort of a, a, a foreigner specific job, which uh-huh. was which good, and I did a good job. So I thought I was going to get a, a great raise on merit, and I just got the same raise As that everybody, everybody else. else got, which was something like one point eight percent. And I was like, are you kidding me? 1.8%? That doesn't even keep up with inflation. So I went to HR and I said, uh, this doesn't work for me. There you go. That's the aggressive salary demand. You were doing it. But I didn't <laughs> I didn't ask aggressively. I said I know, it very but politely. From a, but from a Japanese point of view, that even asking is aggressive because Japanese would never do that, right? <laughs> I know, true. So you know what they did? Uh, what they do? They made me a contract employee. Ah, okay. Well, this gives them more flexibility to do that then. Sure. And because if you're a Seishan, they can't pay you differently than anyone else under that system. Right. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. I was only 23 years old sure, or something like that. Yeah. 
Um, but they made me a contract employee, which in hindsight was perfect because I was not going to, you know, work there for 45 years because I could, right, right. I could see my career path. Right, sure, yeah. You know, 10 years I'm here, 20 years I'm there. And I, I tell you, man, there's no way I wanted to be there in 20 years. <laughs> I wanted right. to be there like next year. Right, right, right. Exactly. Well, that's, that's one of the biggest problems for Japanese companies is it's not so much the way that they hire non-Japanese, I mean, the way that they manage non-Japanese, it's the way that they're managing Japanese and the fact that non-Japanese have other choices. Exactly. And Japanese only put up with it because they feel they don't have other choices. Yeah. So if Japanese start being more picky about where they work and changing jobs and not settling for low salaries, then the whole thing will change. Yeah. So it's really not so much an issue of how they manage non-Japanese, it's just whether, it's whether non-Japanese are willing to settle for that. You mean Japanese are w- willing to settle yeah, well, for that? Well, I mean, well, I mean, the Japanese are willing to settle for it, and non-Japanese aren't. Correct. Right. right. So the problem is not how they're managing non-Japanese, it's that they're managing Japanese... And non-Japanese the same. Yes. Which really isn't that great for anyone. Correct. But Japanese don't feel that they can complain. But don't you think that's changing a little it's bit? It's starting to change. Yes. It's starting to change, and, but there's a whole lot more change that needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I thought for sure there would be a lot of change to this work-life balance because it kind of reared its head at Dentsu when this oh, that, lady, yeah, commuted, could, lady committed sad, no, suicide. So and there was, yeah, very sad. And there was so much outrage about that. And that phrase, work-life balance, was starting to become a buzzword. Right, so right. I thought for sure things were going to start to move a little bit in that direction. Well, there has been a little bit of change. And, you know, and that, that, that tragedy helped kind of push the government's initiative for the Hataraki Kata Kaikaku, the work style reform. Yeah. And there are companies that are really taking that seriously. Yeah. Um, I have some issues with how companies are going about it because a lot of the efforts are, are very simplistically focused at people can't work over time. And we're going to shut down your computer at 6 o'clock. And we're going to turn off the lights at 6 o'clock. And, and no one can stay here. And you know, and that's all fine. And at some level, maybe you have to do that to get people not to work longer. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that not enough companies are actually looking at the content of the work itself. Because it becomes you know, a whack-a-mole. Yes. And if you don't let people work late at night, but they still have the same amount of work to do, then they don't take lunch or they have to come in early. Exactly. Right? Come so in on the weekend. If you don't actually change the content of the work, it's kind of pointless, right? I had this one funny incident one time. I, I left work at 6, uh-huh. and I was going to meet somebody kind of like this for a beer, and I forgot something, and I went back to the office at about 6.20, Oh, and, no. and and almost everybody was gone. <laughs> so you just have to get out early. Yeah, they're yeah. obviously staying because you're there. You have to just get out. You have to leave. If you still have work to do, go do it in the coffee shop or something. Uh, what do you think about the future of Japan? We were just talking a little bit how things are changing now. Right, right. But what about one year or five years or ten years ten from years, now? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. This is the chance for Japan to really kind of get its act together and change 
how it how it manages people deal with that issue we were talking about before of not using people productively because they've only got a certain amount of time before with the aging um, society that that a lot of you kind of demographic issues are really going to start constricting them right and it's also a time when when japan has to start getting comfortable with non-japanese being here and being working here more and that whole the you know the survey you cited of 30 percent of people stressed out working with foreigners well well guess what Japan's not going to be able to avoid being dependent on non-Japanese. Yeah. I thought the Rugby World Cup and the Japan national team, I thought that was a really great example. That was a of, great example. Yes. That was a really great and example. And with the success of the team, yeah. I, it seemed that all my Japanese friends and colleagues and everyone around me were just so happy about the success and there was no, oh, well, you get, we have a bunch of foreigners, therefore, therefore we're successful. Yeah, or, no one said anything no, like that. Nobody said anything yeah, like no, that. Yeah, no, they didn't. And, you know, and it seemed that the team worked together really well as a diverse team. So yes. they were a nice model, right? Exactly. Yes. That was I really great. I liked that too, yeah. Yeah. That was great. We need more examples like that. Japanese are very artistic. It seems like all Japanese can like draw a little cartoon or paint, draw, doodle, illustrate. I can't even draw a stick man. That's how bad I am. Well, uh, my theory on this is is that you know to become literate in Japanese, everyone has to become an artist because you have to be able to write those characters. That's true. And you so and the writing the characters, they have to have a certain balance to them. Mm-hmm. So everyone learns how to draw, or they learn that spatial awareness that. I think in the U.S., only if you're actually interested in art do you learn anything like that. Yeah, good point. Yeah. But you did. Yeah, so. but I was interested in art, so yeah. that's what I did as my hobby. So. Uh, can you draw? Yeah, well? I can draw. I can draw. Nice. Yeah, cartoons? I, yeah, I could do little cartoons. They're not so great, but I can do little cartoons. You didn't do any of the cartoons for the book? No, I didn't. No. How you doing? Are you getting tired? No, I'm okay. You all right? Need a break? No, I'm good. Not, pa- not painful? Nope. <laughs> okay. I'm used to standing and talking for eight hours in a row, so I'm good. Well, let me give you a softball here. What's your favorite restaurant in Tokyo? Oh, wow. Good question. Um, oh, I'm trying By to... By the way, interviewers, when they're interviewing somebody and their guest says, that's a good question, it always makes us feel really good. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Um, there's so many places I like in Tokyo. But if I were going to say, if someone was like, oh, I'm going to take you out for a meal, I'm trying to remember the name. Oh, it is a New Zealand-based restaurant. Wakanui? And, yes, thank you, Wakanui. They are the, fabulous. The, the, the lamb one or the, the steak one? No, well, it's, they have lamb and steak. They have both right. of them. The, the one, it's, um, uh, but it's right by Tokyo Tower there. Yes. Isn't that amazing? The, yes. Their, their lamb and their steak is great. And they also, if you had their, um, their salmon appetizer, it's just to die for. That I have not have. Oh, make had. sure you get that if you're there. Okay. Yeah, if you're, if you're having like a fam- fabulous setai dinner, like yeah. that's probably my favorite place. What's fabulous about that place, when you walk in, you are so close to Tokyo Tower. It's right there. Is that when you walk in, it's so close, you don't notice it. But if you go out on the balcony, it's, it's just right, like yeah, yeah, right yeah, I know, yeah, in front it's right of there. you. Yeah, you, it's very dramatic. You cannot beat the view of yeah. that. So, yeah, yeah Wakanui really is... Yeah, I've always wanted to sit out on the terrace there in the summer. I, yeah. I haven't done that yet. But, yeah, that's... That, if I were going to pick, like, fabulous place for, like, a fancy dinner, that yeah. would be it. 
So I want to talk a little bit about your business, if uh-huh. that's okay. Okay. First, so you work with both Japanese companies doing business globally and also global companies doing business in Japan. Yes, that's correct. Right. Which is the more challenging? Oh, boy. Well, there's definitely challenges of both situations. I would imagine. Right. I think, I think there's different... Each company has their own unique challenges and issues, right? Right. Yeah. I guess what, why I'm asking you, and this is just maybe my yeah. preconception, I think Japanese companies might have a more difficult time adapting to a foreign environment than, say, Western companies might have adapting to a Japanese environment. Mm. Maybe that's just because I've lived here so long and I kind of understand it, but that's just my my preconception. I mean, I think if you were going to make a generalization, I think that would be an okay one to make. Okay. Um, And one thing that there's a big difference between Japanese multinationals and foreign multinationals is how they approach the operations in foreign countries. And this is actually something I wrote about in my first book, The Rice Paper Ceiling, that foreign multinationals tend to have very localized management structures. And again, it depends on the company, but in general, um, a lot of their management positions will be locally hired people, and often even the top person will be a locally hired person. And, And... in comparison, Japanese companies tend to send a lot more expatriates to their overseas operations. This is true. And they tend to make their decisions more centrally. So mm-hmm. more decision-making is done at the parent company. And so they're, they're not as localized either in their people uh, or in their decision processes. And so that makes it more challenging to be responsive to the local situation. So I have a lot of friends that are recruiters, headhunters. And they all say the same thing. Most, even foreign affiliated companies, even the head office, whether it be the U.S. or Europe or wherever it is, they think that a, a, a Japanese should be hired as the local head. Right, right. But the opposite is true for Japanese companies, right? right? You know, and so in Japanese companies, some of them are starting to put non-Japanese in the top position in their foreign operations, but it's happening slowly, right? Yeah. And... There's still some companies that, that won't do that, right? So it, there's definitely a big difference. When Japanese companies, when they hire you as a consultant, uh-huh. do they do they listen to you? I mean, are they open to uh-huh. your suggestions? And do they embrace your suggestions right, and right. go, yes, we're going to do this to globalize? <laughs> I, I don't... I don't see that just clicking like a like a light switch on and off. Well, I think what I think the the screen comes at an earlier stage that if the company is not interested in doing something different, then they're probably not going to even hire me in the first place, right? Yeah. So valid point. I I tend to get but for Japanese companies our clients tend to be in one of two categories. Either it's those Japanese companies that are being really proactive and are are kind of on the cutting edge of being more global. We also have clients that call us because they've had problems. And they and, and one and once they're in enough pain, they're kind of willing to try new things, right? Okay. So we have clients in that category too. What are some of the most common difficulties in getting Japanese and foreign staff to work together that you've seen or experienced over your career? Oh boy. Well, there's there's always issues related to communication. 
communication, you mean English versus Japanese, or just communication style, Both. or yeah. Both, right? So the, there's the language barrier, but even if everyone could speak each other's language perfectly, there's the style difference. That's true. And it's a stereotype, but there's the Westerners who really like to talk a lot and much too much and don't listen enough, and then there's the Japanese who don't say enough or explain enough. Right, and, and they, well, those are stereotypes, but I mean, there's definitely a grain of truth there. Well, there's got to be a kernel of truth to these stereotypes, otherwise they wouldn't exist. Is there anything you'd like me to ask you, or anything you'd oh, like to talk let's about? see. Oh, boy. Well, I guess I can tell you about um, some of the stuff I'm working on right now, is I'm working on an update of one of my books for Japanese that's all about how to manage employees more effectively. Foreign, foreign employees no, or, or just any in general? Any employees. But um, you know, with, with giving more feedback yeah. and more clarity about job duties. But if you as a foreigner write a book about this, won't a lot of Japanese just look at it and say, oh, this is a foreigner who's just trying to adapt what works in their country to our culture, but our culture is different? You know, I guess there's that argument, but... I, t- I kind of I talk a lot actually in the book about how younger Japanese are really different. Anyway, there's a big generation gap in Japanese True. Uh, yeah. culture, and a lot of older Japanese have a lot of frustrations managing younger Japanese. And younger Japanese, their expectations as employees are actually becoming closer to foreign employees. And so there, I think there is something for Japanese to be learned from American management techniques. Okay. Because what they're doing now with younger Japanese, they know it's not working. So they're looking for alternatives. For sure. And also, you know, again, it probably won't be ready by the time your podcast comes out, but on my to-do list... Mm-hmm. I really need to do an update of my original book, The Rice Paper Ceiling. The Rice Paper Ceiling. Ceiling, I like that. And I had a book that I did in Japanese that I want to do an English edition of. It's called Creating Engaged Employees in Japan. Mm-hmm. Okay. And again, I, I realized that I need to write an additional chapter specifically for the English version that would be more for... Uh, we have a lot of clients that are foreign firms in Japan... Their company does a global engagement survey. Japan comes in last. And they come to us and say, okay, what do we help us fix this? Yep. So I want to write something about that specific situation because it's coming up a lot. Yep. Um, you know, if, if you're managing a company in Japan, you got bad engagement scores, why might that be happening? What can you do about it? How do yep. you talk to your parent company about it when they say, what, what the heck are you guys doing there sure. in Japan? You just can't say, oh, it's a cultural thing. Exactly, yes. At that time, when you do release a new book, we can also redo this again. Oh, that would be fun too. I really like yeah. interviewing people that have just written books, uh-huh. and I've done it three times already. Uh-huh. And it's a lot of fun to talk about their books. And right. they're obviously, because they've just published these books, they're really passionate about it. They want to oh, talk about it. They're excited about it. Yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, Rochelle, thank you very yeah, much. Well, Cheers. Thank you. This was lots of fun. I hope so. Yes, Thanks. Thank you. And that, my friends, was Rochelle Kopp, Japan Intercultural Specialist Extraordinaire. Be sure to read her excellent articles in the Japan Times and all her other great links, which can be found on her LinkedIn profile. Thank you for listening to another episode of Business and Beers, and catch you next time. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.